I very often say to lawmakers, why should sexual predators be protected by the passage of time Mm -hmm. when victims suffer in perpetuity? And why should that happen by the very silence that the perpetrator created? Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. It's hard to overstate the impact of the laws that Catherine Robb, Executive Director of Child U.S. Advocacy, has changed and continues to change in service of child sexual abuse victims. She knows the science that most survivors don't ever tell, but if they do, they most often do so in their 50s. So the laws need to account for the dynamics of delayed disclosure and provide what the spirit of the law intended, which is to hold the perpetrator of this heinous crime accountable even after the passage of time. In this special episode, she shares her own story of abuse, but also something that is more recent and especially heartbreaking. She truly embodies not just a lion-hearted professional, but a lion-hearted mom. Trigger warning. This episode deals with difficult topics, including child sexual abuse and incest. Please take care of yourselves and know you are never alone. Resources are in the show notes. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Catherine, I wanted to just set the scene for our listeners as to why I have you on today. You were a guest on a panel called Honest Conversations for Darkness to Light a few months ago. And that's when I first got to know you and the work that you do. I was completely enamored, inspired. I knew that you had to be a guest on this show about lion-hearted people who spend their lives fighting the one thing no one wants to talk about, child sexual abuse. So I reached out to you. I sent you an email and asked if you would be a guest on the show. And I just wanted to quote, to read what you wrote back to me, okay? You wrote, sure thing. You wrote, count me in. I'd be happy to be a guest. I am a self-professed ass kicker when it comes to protecting kids. Zero tolerance. And I knew right there. I was like, okay, this is my lady. This is happening. Mm-hmm. You're awesome. And that's why we have you yeah. on the show. I, I don't mince words when it comes <laughs> to protecting children and, you know, just honoring this basic thing called justice. So it doesn't surprise me that I wrote that. In. <laughs> oh, I love being in company like yours because I couldn't agree more. So before we get into hearing your story, I'd love if you could just tell us briefly a little about yourself. I am the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy. We are um, a national group that writes, edits, testifies on child protection legislation. So I do a lot of writing of legislation and editing of legislation, and I get called on to testify before typically judiciary hearings, but sometimes it's other types of hearings and other committees and really an effort to get lawmakers to change their laws to make it safer 
And I am also a survivor of child sexual abuse and a mother of five, attorney, and someone who strongly believes as a citizen of this country that we need to use our laws and the power of our laws to make kids safe. And the way to do that is to allow survivors, victims, however they identify, to have the option of walking into one of our courts and holding their abuser and their institution that perhaps look the other way to hold them accountable. And when we do that, we make kids safe. So I'm a tireless advocate in that regard. I bring the lens of a survivor of the little girl in me that was abused. And I bring it for children, all children in every single jurisdiction. Thank you for that. I think what needs to be said again and again is that child sexual abuse victims rarely get justice. So that's why we have this problem that you are fighting. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very challenging for victims of child sexual abuse to get justice. But I'm going to add, until now, hmm. until now, because whether we're talking about children or adult children, I believe that uh, we are making changes mm-hmm. uh, right now. We call this um, a civil rights movement for children, and we have 29 jurisdictions that have passed uh, what we call revival legislation, and we have 20 states that have eliminated, actually, twenty I should say 20 jurisdictions, because I would count the federal government in that as well, that is, they have eliminated, moving forward, the statute of limitation. So I believe that this national movement to use the rule of law to protect children and to afford survivors justice is growing. Every single session, I just testified in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in in mid-September, and I believe we're going to be making changes there. So It's really hard for kids to come forward. It's really hard for adults to come forward to talk about what happened to them as children. But I think the tide is shifting. And I think we are starting to give children and victims voices. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think it's something that makes sense. So that's what we're doing. Okay. I appreciate that hopeful note. And I just want to say that it's because of you, your team at Child U.S. Advocacy, Marcy Hamilton, her team at Child USA, who are at the helm of this movement that we are so grateful for. I would hate to even imagine if you all weren't doing this work. Yeah, and I should add that Marcy Hamilton changed my life. Mm -hmm. I met Professor Marcy Hamilton 17 years ago, she runs Child USA. They're the national think tank. Uh, I run Child US Advocacy. We're sort of the end of this two-pronged, you know, fighters. I'm able to put my gloves on and really take some smacks and hits at lawmakers. I can call them out more. I can 
really lobby on a piece of legislation because we're a 501c4. But, you know, Marcy mm-hmm. and I are truly a one-two punch mm-hmm. in this arena. And it's starting to change things quite significantly, I would add, with the amount of states that have finally awakened to the epidemic that's mm-hmm. happening in our country and seeing the public policy reasons that we need to make these changes. Absolutely. And I mean, this is why I admire you so much, Catherine, and I am energized by you because of that badass energy that's like, I'm not going anywhere and I'm willing to fight. I often share the story where I want to say it was maybe 2018 early on. I was in a press conference in Albany or New York and the place was packed, just packed. And I went up to speak after some lawmakers and I, and I thought to myself, where's the governor on this? And so I just called out the governor. I just, you know, from my heart said, where's the governor on this? You're either with us or you're not with us. You either stand with children and survivors or you stand with institutions and sexual predators. You, you got to pick. You can't have it both ways. And within 36 hours, I was sitting down in Governor Cuomo's office and having a two and a half hour conversation with him. So, you know, so I'll do that in a press conference, but I'll also do it in in an op-ed. I love to call out folks. This is really hard stuff and it, it's hard to talk about this. It's hard to put this in front of lawmakers and the public, but we must, we must speak about that thing that is so hard to talk about. I think that hard doesn't mean you don't pay attention, right? Hard means you wake the hell up and you pay attention and you stand up and you speak out and you raise some of that good trouble that John Lewis talked about. We have to do that for our children. We have to do that for truth. And if we don't, we are failing children presently. I'm not afraid to talk about the hard thing. Clearly, you're not. And I'm so inspired and emboldened by that. And I'm not against shaming (laughs) these lawmakers, right? I mean, we're social creatures. We want to be liked. Sometimes you need to be called out. And I also love your simplicity of, wait a second. No, really, where is the governor? (laughs) It's kind of simple. He should be here. Catherine, I would love for you to tell us your story beginning in your childhood if you could paint a picture for us. Sure. So I was raised in New York on Long Island. I was a part of a very big Irish Catholic family. My parents were affluent. My dad worked on Wall Street. You know, everything was right in the world. I didn't want anything. I went to the best schools. We had a home in the Hamptons. We had a maid, we had a dog, life, you know, from the outside looked really good. I had all the clothing and food and schools and we belonged to two country clubs. I spent my summers on the beach every day. I didn't know any differently. So things from the outside seemed rather idyllic and that I was a very happy kid. 
but I was a kid with a secret. And I was experiencing child sexual abuse fairly frequently. I was being abused by my oldest brother. I am one of eight kids, and it it crushed my soul as a little girl. It started when I was about seven or eight. Most of the abuse happened in the, the darkness of the night where no one knew. And I did exhibit some what we would call classic signs. I was very quiet. I had sleep issues. I sort of kind of caved into myself a bit and became a very shy kid. Hmm. Uh, Believe it or not, my kids nowadays (laughs) think I can't even imagine you as a quiet kid, but I I was. Hmm. And it affected how I thought about who I was as a little girl Hmm. and what my purpose was on life, how valued I was. Hmm. But it also had a profound effect on my psyche. And again, I had sleep issues, I had eating issues, I had depression, I had a ton of anxiety at night. I'm talking to my therapist now, and when the past uh, several decades, we understood that I was having panic attacks at night, but I only saw it as the room was caving in on me and that mm. I couldn't breathe, that sort of thing. So nighttime was really hard for me. And, you know, I often have said that basketball saved my life. It sounds rather silly, but having the opportunity to, at one point I played on three basketball teams. I played on, let's see, I played on the Catholic youth organization team known as CYO. I played in the police boys uh, club team. I was the only girl on the team. And I also played for my high school team. So I was like, really into basketball and just having that space to feel my body and Mm. to also just have that experience that we have of endorphins flowing Mm. when we're engaged in physical activity. I didn't really know that very much what I was experiencing as a child was part of that fight, flight, or freeze. I was having disassociation Mm. and definitely the freezing and sort of being above my body Mm -hmm. uh, when I was being assaulted by my oldest brother. Mm. So basketball gave me an opportunity to be in my body, Mm. to have that, the release of stress hormones, um, and to feel like I also had ownership of in my body. And I and I didn't have that, obviously, when I was being abused and also experiencing the trauma and stress after I was being abused. That went on until I was about 14 or 15. And it was a secret. I kept that secret for a very, very long time until I was in my very early 20s, like age 22, 23. I was watching some made-for-TV show with a very, very dear friend, my very best friend to this day. Mm. And at the end of watching this show, and it was about abuse. I don't think it was just sexual abuse. Mm. But at the end of this TV program, there was where to reach help, 1-800 numbers, that sort of thing. Mm And I had this look on my face, and it was one of those rare moments where I allowed my mind to think about it. 
And my friend saw the look in my eyes and she said, what? What's going on? And I immediately went into sort of that flight mode and I said, nothing, nothing. And she, with such gentleness and love as only a true friend Mm -hmm. and best friend can do, really pushed me gently. Mm -hmm. And I essentially had a breakdown that night and shared the story for the very first time. Now, as we know, a lot of survivors will share a little bit of the story and then sort of retreat and clam up because it's too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the nature of trauma. And that's why our bodies are so fascinating that we have this stress response that, in fact, that fight, flight, or freeze is really protecting us from the overwhelming weight of this trauma, right? Right. And it took many years decades later to really tell the full story and to be fully alive in my body. So I came out as a survivor then and have been a very bold speaker about this issue and worked and testified all over the country. And then until very recently, I'll share the story of my oldest child. I have five beautiful children. And my oldest son came to me this past June and told me that when he was about eight years old, so this was would be the late 1990s, that he was raped, sodomized by an ER doctor in the Boston area. The doctor had told my then husband and I that he was taking our son for a test. And In fact, what he did was he took my perfect, perfect little boy to the dark basement area. My son said it was a very dark lit area and sodomized him. I I now wish I had known then what I know now, right? So in the late 1990s, as a very young mother, I I didn't know I couldn't trust an ER doctor. I didn't know the data then. I didn't know that one in four or one in five girls will be sexually assaulted before their 18th birthday. And one in 13 boys, some research says it's one in 17 boys or one in 20 boys. It's a lot of children, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know the data then. I didn't even know about the hell of clergy abuse. The spotlight had not come out yet. We didn't hear about Jerry Sandusky at Penn State. We didn't hear about Boy Scouts of America, Larry Nasser, Michael Jackson. You know, now we know the, all of these stories are out. So with great sadness as a mother, I wish I knew then what I know now, because at that point I thought I could trust an ER doctor, right? So as hard as that was to hear, It has only deepened my resolve to continue this work until we change the law in every single state and at the congressional and federal level as well. I am not going to stop and raising some good trouble Mm -hmm. until we can change these laws and use the power of the rule of law and and the spirit of the law I firmly believe in. And I have to convince lawmakers all over the country that things need to change. Thank you so much for sharing both of those incredibly intimate 
and painful stories. And I know you do that simply because you want to help others. Going back to your personal story, Catherine. Sure. I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. And looking back, what could your parents have known to have been better equipped to help you or to sense that something was wrong? Mm -hmm. Have you thought if and what there could have been? Yes. I, of course, think about that a lot. I have to share that my mother, who is 92 years old, and we talk several times a week, Mm -hmm. uh, she feels terrible about it. And every time the topic comes up, which is frequent, she apologizes. And Mm -hmm. I always say to her, well, mom, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. You didn't know. And she says, well, I should have known. It is my fault. I'm partly responsible. So I can tell you that that has saved me probably at least five years of therapy, um, right? Because I, of um, the the honesty that my that my mom and the compassion mm, and that she shows me. Yeah. And you know, my mom and I talk about this a lot. And I'm going to sound a little bit like a crazy feminist, but I, I welcome I it. Think that, <laughs> so I think that part of this problem, I often say. It's the problem of the two P's. Um, one P is, of course, pedophilia, mm-hmm. right? And and that is an enormous problem. But the other P is the patriarchy. And I and I don't use that term loosely. And my mom and I talk about this a lot, that my brother was given more power than I was given. Mm-hmm. He was also given information that he thought he was more valued than I was. He also was given information that his his body was more important than my body mm-hmm. and that his right to, I guess, sex or sexual gratification was, you know, at the expense of mine. Mm-hmm. And those were messages that we were both getting. I was born in 1960. I was raised, obviously, in the 60s and the 70s. And those were really different times, but I would argue that sexism, misogyny, and the patriarchy are alive and well. Mm -hmm. And so to be really clear about gender roles and gender equality in families and in institutions outside families, like religious institutions medical institutions, educational institutions, those injustices that are fed by the patriarchy are alive and well, and your children leave the home and go into those institutions. So I think that this is a really big problem in that little girls are faced with messages constantly that they are less powerful and less valued. And that certainly happened within my family. And my mother was also a product of that. Mm -hmm. And my father was as well. So I think to give parents the advice to be awake in the water in which we swim. Mm -hmm. I complain about why boys are treated this way and girls are treated this way. Let me just say for all of your listeners Little boys are abused as well, and that is outrageous and wrong, and we fight for boys and girls. Mm. This is not the fault of boys. This is 
the fault of a gender construct, mm-hmm. right? I think that parents need to awaken to the world in which they are living, the very subtle biases that we live in and we raise our children in. So I think an awareness of how boys are treated differently than girls to this day, those differences create assumptions that boys and men have more rights and more rights to women's bodies and their services, all of that. So I think that's one part of it. But I also think being aware of the experience and how children respond to child sexual abuse, whether it's sudden changes in children, sudden eating issues, sleeping Mm -hmm. issues, not wanting to go be with a certain member of family Mm -hmm. or not wanting to go to this school or to this church or to this camp, Mm -hmm. things like that to really be aware of changes in children and quite simply to listen to children, not just with our minds and our intellect, but to pay attention to the subtle messages that children send us that may be in the face of fear or doubt or shame or embarrassment Mm -hmm. uh, that may show up in very subtle ways. You know, I wish that I had paid attention. I I wish I could go back and see if there was something I was missing. Those are things that parents need to pay attention to, but also know that everyone is a stranger. Everyone is a stranger. Even those people that you think that you should trust, professionals, teachers, police officers, doctors, everyone is a stranger, Mm -hmm. family members. And to trust your gut, to really, really trust your gut and to be fully aware. And that's not easy. That's not easy in our times. But Mm -mm. I think to trust that is really important. Yeah, You know, I am feeling hopeful that more and more people understand, it seems, that Mm -hmm. there's every reason for a child not to disclose. Yes. What I've often heard is, why didn't they tell? And that's the wrong question. There's every reason not to tell. So let's try to look at their changes, like you said, in, in affect or behavior things like that. And then you might get a glimpse into what's happening. I I do think people don't quite understand how much children's bodies are in survival mode and they're protecting themselves mm-hmm. and they're trying to survive. Mm-hmm. They're trying not to upset anyone, especially their loved ones. And they're incredibly susceptible to grooming and to threats and everything mm-hmm. else. I just feel like one of the things I try so hard to tell people is I don't even ask. You shouldn't be asking, why didn't you tell? I understand why you didn't tell, Mm -hmm. right? And I want everyone to understand why kids don't tell. Not to mention their brains are different. They're they're not fully developed. They're, you know, a, a million other reasons. Right. And it's it's every reason why we should be asking. Yes. We should be 
really having a clear focus on them and the many different ways that children speak to us. Tone, affect, body language, mm-hmm. changes, like I said earlier, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those are really clear messages. Mm-hmm. In many ways, I think that children are telling, telling the only way they can oh, because yeah. they are so overcome with fear and shame and embarrassment, right? Yes. It's, you know, in, in many ways that they're doing the only thing they can do. Right. Oh, I love that way of, right. of framing it because they don't have the language. I just went last week to this Internet Crimes Against Children conference, and the keynote speaker is this amazing woman. She was a prosecutor for many years in L.A. County, and then now she lives in Oakland, and she runs a civil law firm that focuses on representing victims of child sexual abuse. And she's a survivor as well. And she talks about how the first time she disclosed was to her friend at sleepaway camp. And she loves Mm -hmm. sleepaway camp. And it was her first night there. And she was so excited. And the friend told one of the counselors. And then the counselor came back to her and said, is it true? Were you abused? Were you molested? And she was like Mm -hmm. nine years old. And and she said, I said no, because I don't know those words. That's not how I understood it. And then this is horrible. She was sent home, almost like punishment, (laughs) Mm -hmm. back to her abuser. Mm -hmm. But I know. But anyway, the point is, I think that it's important for us to try to get in the minds and the hearts of children. That's the only Mm -hmm. way we can hear their messaging and their ways of communicating. Absolutely. Like in any other thing that we do for children, Mm -hmm. we are the voice for them, Mm -hmm. right? And to touch on the patriarchy thing, I feel like in a patriarchy, when an allegation comes forward about child sexual abuse, I do feel like most people's knee-jerk reaction is to protect the man mm-hmm. over the child. I, I'm curious, other than the obvious, kids just don't have a voice. They're so vulnerable. They don't have a lobby. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't really have child rights, exactly. Um, well, they're, they, they don't vote. <laughs> right, exactly. So, right. They have no political so they, power, no earning yeah. power, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Uh, Do you agree that kids are not, I don't want to overstate this, I don't feel like they're valued? Oh, without (laughs) a doubt. They're definitely not valued. Uh, We act as if they are valued, but that's clearly not the case. We are living in an epidemic, you know, so it's about, that we know of, it's about 13.5% of all children will be sexually assaulted, raped, or sodomized before their 18th birthday, Okay. So if we had some sort of strange new virus Mm -hmm. that was just devastating children, right, Congress would have had emergency hearings and there would have been an executive order to change things, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't respond to it because we don't want to look at it. And there's clearly an element of gender in this epidemic. And we have a lot of work to do. You don't need to be a constitutional scholar to understand what fairness looks like, what mm. justice looks like, what common flipping sense looks like, right? What good public policy looks like. 
I see it even in the workings of trying to pass legislation. I see the, the patriarchy mm-hmm. and gender inequity and, and value and power and all of that percolate mm-hmm. to the to the surface, right? We need to use the power and the rule of law to save our children, because when we save our children, we are saving ourselves. Yeah. And, and there's just no other way around it. I don't think there is any more noble profession than what you are doing mm-hmm. for kids, truly. Mm-hmm. I'm a wannabe lawyer, by the way. But I, <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> so just going back to your family and your story, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you said that you first came out about your abuse to your best friend when you were in your early 20s, mm-hmm. how did your family react to this at that time or when they first heard? They reacted in a way that was somewhat appropriate, but also it had a protectionist feel. Because if if we think about calling out a sexual predator, right, mm-hmm. when that perpetrator predator is in the family, mm-hmm. you have to point in. So in many ways, you're indicting your family. Let me just say, as an aside, this is why it's so hard for kids who are being abused in the family, which the vast majority of abuse is mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. because where do you run to when you're being hurt? You run home. You mm-hmm. run home to tell your parents, you know, and sadly, sometimes it is a parent that is mm-hmm. abusing the child, step-parent, parent, mm-hmm. older brother, uncle, grandfather, sadly, right? Mm-hmm. So there was this protectionist type of response, and I have to admit, it was in me as well. In fact, what happened was um, one of my younger sisters was also abused. I happened to be home from law school. She was still in college. She came home, woke me up at like five in the morning because that was the time she was having her breakdown. You know, I had had my breakdown earlier and Mm -hmm. was slowly starting to deal with this. Mm -hmm. When she woke me up to say, we need to talk about what, what he did to us. And I jumped out of bed and I was like, shh, mom is in the other room. Like I was still protecting the family, you know, Um, and and naturally so. In many ways, that's natural. So the response was, you know, in that moment, I was protecting my mother. Then we called our oldest sister and she was awesome. But it was still, it still had some secrecy to it when a survivor tells you open the clam and then it's mm. like, oh, it's too much. And you clam right up again. So this happens in layers. Mm. It certainly happened to me. And that's what I hear from other survivors. Mm-hmm. Again, when abuse happens in the family, you're pointing in. Right? You're indicting your family name, the family history, the whole thing. So it becomes very complicated. There's a lot of shh, right? We don't want other people to know. Because incest is like the ugliest word out there it's so taboo child sexual abuse is extremely taboo and really hard to talk about but when you're talking about it with a family member this is why people don't tell this is why it's so hard to come forward my older sister was wonderful there was some sharing some clamming up and then you know both my sister and i sort of slowly spoke out about it my parents didn't find out till later And in fact, my dad passed away about six months after. 
and he was traumatized. In fact, I think it was one of the nails in his coffin. It blew him away. He had no idea. Now, I also came from a family that there was a lot of drinking going on. Mm. And I do believe that the abuse of alcohol in my family also created uh, an opportunity for me to be abused because when parents are drinking, they're not able to fully see what in the hell is really going on. Mm -hmm. So that was something that both my sister and I have to work through. Mm. But I would say overall, especially right now, the support of my mother and most of my siblings, the vast majority of my siblings, has been very supportive, very loving and, mm. and kind. And there's even been some sort of like survivor guilt. Like some of my sisters are like, how did I not know? And how did I not protect you? So oh, that can be another complicating factor when abuse happens in the family. But right. overall, my experience was positive. I feel lucky in that regard. And then now, as you just shared with us, you have this really unfortunate experience to hear mm -hmm. from your child, right? And the irony mm -hmm. is not lost on any of us that this has been your life's work and you've suffered mm -hmm. so greatly. And here you are in this other role with it. It blew me into a million, million pieces again. I wished I knew then what I know now, mm. but I was a young mother and I didn't. And when I testified in September, it was the first time I testified as a, a parent of a survivor. Mm. And I, I said to them, we didn't know then. We didn't know the data. We didn't know how ubiquitous this problem was. We didn't know clergy abuse. I said earlier, Sandusky and Larry Nassar and Boy Scouts of America and, you know, all the headlines after headlines after headlines. We didn't know then. I didn't know then. And I feel terrible that my son was victimized. But damn it, we know now. We know now. I know now. They know now. Lawmakers know now. And we have to change this. We have to change our laws to respond to this epidemic. So as a mother, I'm testifying, not as an expert, not as an attorney, not as a survivor myself, but as someone who knows now, my son and I are working very closely together, trying to locate this specific perpetrator and come hell or high water, we will. And I will just use this deep and profound sadness yeah. to uh, further change the laws. Thinking about the power of story making, mm -hmm. and this is with all due respect to every single survivor, mm -hmm. but I do feel that far too many people of influence, celebrities, people in power, let their stories die. I do feel that we must plant our stories in the soil of change. Mm -hmm. We must allow them to grow and to root in change. We can't just tell them and let them float away. I feel a yearning to reach out mm -hmm. to people in influence, to join us in this civil rights movement for children, mm -hmm. to allow the power of their stories to 
be planted and take root and help us make the changes that we're making. Catherine, I couldn't agree more. And I actually struggle with this too, because I think the list is endless. And I wish they did more with their stories because they have the power and the platform. At the same time, I'm like, of course, they are entitled to live how they want to live. And I even think at least they told and they're not hiding it. But I'm still yearning for them to do more with their story. But I also understand how scary it is and that maybe not everyone is able to be public like an advocate. You know, they're just getting through their day and their own survival. I completely get that sentiment of yours. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know mm-hmm. where to put that. <laughs> I I think there's power in stories, right? Absolutely. And I think we want to make changes at the federal level, at the state level, doing everything we can to use the the rule of law mm-hmm. to to make kids safer, to give survivors, victims, however they identify, justice. Mm-hmm. We need ambassadors of these stories to plant them Mm -hmm. in a richer soil that can effectuate change Mm -hmm. at that level, right? Mm -hmm. But as I say that, I think to myself, well, who are you, Catherine, to tell someone what they should do with their story? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I believe it has power. I also think there's healing. Look at the laws that changed in New York Mm -hmm. that, that Professor Marcy Hamilton and I worked on for 16 years. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I was in Albany. Those laws mm. allowed Prince a- Andrew to be mm. held accountable to at least the estate of Jeffrey Epstein for the, mm-hmm. his young victims to be held accountable. And, and now for the Adult Survivors Act, for Trump to be held accountable. There's power in this when we make these changes And I believe that when survivors use their stories to implement change, not only does it help children in the future, but it helps heal Heal. their hearts as well. I think that is hugely powerful coming from you, who's actually done it and felt Mm -hmm. how that works. And maybe little by little, that message will get out there. You just mentioned the Child Victims Act that you worked Mm -hmm. 16 years on, right? Yes. Would you say that is your greatest professional accomplishment to date? Or is there something Mm. else that comes to mind? Well, I think New York was a very, very big win for children and for survivors. I don't feel victorious, and I'm not going to feel victorious until we change Chapter 11 bankruptcy, because that is just such a big thorn in my side right now. Catherine, will you explain what the Child Victims Act did? And then after that, the Chapter 11 bankruptcy? Happy to. So the Child Victims Act, the probably the most important thing that it did was it opened what we call a window, a revival for those folks who were barred from bringing their claims because of the statute of limitations. So they finally have the courage to come forward and share it with their family and share it with perhaps law enforcement. 
and they go and they speak to an attorney and attorney says, I'm really sorry, we can't sue your perpetrator or institution because it's barred by the statute of limitations. So what we allow to happen, but only in a civil case, we cannot revive statute of limitations in criminal cases because of some constitutionality issues. Very good ones, by the way. But in civil cases, we can. And by the way, I think the power of the civil justice system has more muscle and might than even the criminal system. Mm. When we allow those claims to have a period where we open a window of time where, yes, you were barred, but guess what? Now, starting on this date, and it was August 19, 2009, August, excuse me, 14th, 2019, that that window opened. And for two years, you have a right to walk into court and file your claim, right? And this is really important because we know that most survivors don't come forward until they're in their 50s, right? And come forward publicly and talk to either law enforcement or an attorney or something like that. Mm-hmm. They just don't come forward publicly. And so I always say, why should we allow perpetrators to hide their secrets and to be safe when they're the very people that silence their victims, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one part. And it also extended the statute of limitations. So prospectively, it extended it, but also opened up this window period. By the way, we're going back and we're going to ask for a permanent window because that's what Maryland just did. That's what Vermont did. And that's what Maine has done. So we're really looking to now permanent windows, what I call zero tolerance policies. Mm -hmm. Backwards, forwards, you touch a kid, mm-hmm. you're going to be held accountable. If you negligently let a kid be harmed by some other perpetrator in your institution, mm-hmm. you're going to be held accountable. So revivals just allow that victim that was barred from entering into the courtroom to have that opportunity to do so. So that's what we did in New York, and that's really what we're doing across the country, extending the statute of limitations and also opening up a revival period. As to bankruptcy, the problem with bankruptcy is, well, there's a couple of problems. And a lot of your listeners may know about the Sackler Purdue mm-hmm. Pharma situation, where basically agreements in bankruptcy protect the wrongdoer from personal liability. So we want to change that. And we just don't want these bad acting institutions Mm -hmm. running to the bankruptcy court. Because when Congress created Chapter 11 in 1978, it was created for businesses that Mm -hmm. fell on hard times. It wasn't a clearinghouse for child sexual abusers and institutions, right? So it's an abuse of Chapter 11. And we are asking Congress to change this. As a forensic interviewer, I work with a team for the investigation of child sexual abuse, right? And if there was abuse, hopefully filing charges. So I'm on the the criminal side of it, and I just get enraged that it's almost like winning the lottery to actually have charges filed. I've always felt like because children's brains are different, because we know about delayed disclosure, because we know about grooming, that the burden of proof is too high. Mm -hmm. But this brings up constitutional issues, like you said. Mm -hmm. In my fantasy, the burden of proof would be lowered 
Should I give up on that dream? I think lowering the burden of proof is going to be really, really super hard to do. You know, the other thing I think your listeners might find interesting is that the other thing about the criminal end of things is the victim doesn't have any control. Mm -hmm. This is not up to the victim. Lots of prosecutors just don't want to take the case, don't want to do the work even, or quite frankly, they're overburdened, just have too much on their plate. And by the way, this is the very reason I say to lawmakers, this is why we have to change the civil statutes. Mm -hmm. Many of them say, well, we don't understand. We just changed all our criminal laws last year. I'm like, yeah, but less than 10% of these crimes Mm -hmm. move forward to prosecution. Exactly. Right. So what does that say about the safety of our children? Therefore, we have to find the muscle and the power within the civil system. Right. That's the answer. Okay. All right. I'm with you. It's incredibly frustrating, but you're giving me hope. Was there a moment in your life where you thought, oh my gosh, this is my calling. This is what I'm going to do. Well, I knew that I wanted to go to law school just because I wanted an additional muscle. I wanted it also because it is an additional muscle, but also I feel like women and girls need additional muscles. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when I started to understand that I could make lawmakers understand what was happening and what they could do to protect children and doing so in a convincing way, just speaking as a reasonable mother, mm-hmm. a reasonable human being, mm-hmm. not just not another sad story, right? The reason behind sharing the sad story, when I was able to do that, and when I see that look in a lawmaker that they're starting to get it, mm-hmm. then... I very often say to lawmakers, why should sexual predators be protected by the passage of time when victims suffer in perpetuity? And why should that happen by the very silence that the perpetrator created? And I very often get that. It's like an aha Aha moment. moment. And I know I got him. And Um, that's the power of words and the brain. And this extra muscle that you got. And I know that healing is a journey. Mm -hmm. I know it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. But what has been most healing for you in your entire life's journey from a child sexual abuse survivor to a mom of a survivor Mm -hmm. now, too? By far, being an advocate for legal change. I'm never going to (laughs) retire. You know, I feel that there is power in educating the public, educating lawmakers, and making our laws, making kids safer. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple. Yep. And the only way to do that is to have really tough laws, given the epidemic of child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of work to do, and mm-hmm. I am not going to stop until I can do everything possible using the law to make kids safer and to give survivors what they need. I think it's really smart how you use language. I noticed a lot of the time you say common sense legislation. And when you 
talk about child rights. It's a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. All these things, I think, make a huge difference and, and can wake people up. I wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to add that we haven't touched on yet that you think is important. I think about the little girl, Catherine, a lot. I feel her voice Mm. and her power in me. And so in so many ways, I feel like I'm a kid fighting for kids. Mm. But at the same time, I'm not. I'm an adult. But her voice is alive in me. I believe that life is beautiful. And I believe that we can make life more beautiful. And part of making life more beautiful is honoring people and making kids safe and making the world a better place Mm. and allowing survivors to heal and feel their power. I love that you brought up the little girl in you. Mm -hmm. I think we as adults get so detached from the child that Mm -hmm. we were. It takes a lot of work often for people in therapy to get back to that. What would you say to that little girl now if you could go back? I would say... It's not your fault. That's beautiful. I feel like that is the perfect way to end. And I wish that message for all survivors. Exactly. Catherine, thank you so, so much. This is a dream conversation for me. You truly are the embodiment of the Lionhearted. Thank you for all the work that you have done, you continue to do, and I know you will do for the rest of your life. We are indebted. Thank you. Take care. The patriarchy point Catherine makes is a really interesting one. If it hasn't occurred to you before, I encourage you to think about that. What are the messages we all breathe in that we don't even realize are paving paths for boys and men to feel entitled to women's bodies and sexuality? Lastly, As someone who clearly cares deeply about children, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, I ask you to think about how little children are valued in our society, as they don't have any political or economic power. They quite simply have no voice. And that's why we need to be their voice. If you're inspired by Catherine and want to join the Civil Rights Movement for Children, please go to the websites of Child U.S. Advocacy and Child USA to learn more. Thank you for caring and thank you for listening. The Lionhearted Podcast is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing and of course to our guest, Catherine Robb. Follow us at The Lionhearted Podcast on all socials and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is Lionhearted? Let us know at the Lionhearted Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.